This week on the 10 Podcast, Seizing My Second Chance with Jesse Cross. I had just turned 18. I was always looking for the right way to feel. And I, the first time I did cocaine, it was like a light switch. I was like, this is how I'm supposed to feel. Essentially went from, you know, an average kid to a feral animal. It felt inescapable. Cowardice was continuing to do what I was doing. I walked right into the barrel of a gun and somebody's saying, I'll shoot you dead, boy. You can make a decision and make this time meaningful and you can do something with it or you can just be angry and get lost. It's the hardest part of their job, just the absolute disconnect and not knowing what's coming and not having any sense of like security in the day. We need to look at people first and we need to make sure that people have the tools they need to support themselves, to move forward, to be healthy and to, to model that to other people. The views and opinions expressed on the 108 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. The 108 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the 108 podcast episode 305, seizing my second chance with Jesse Crossan. This episode is so amazing, and Jesse has an amazing story, and more so, has an amazing self-imposed vision and goal. You see, at 18 years old, Jesse was sentenced to 30 years in prison. And he spent the next 19 years in prison for armed robbery and being involved in a shooting. Now, on face value, you may be confused and wondering what someone with that kind of backstory has to do with being on a police-based podcast. But really, the things you're about to take in from this conversation and this show will transcend career paths. But first, let's go ahead and give a shout out to all of our sponsors. Listen, it's no surprise to anyone that law enforcement agencies suck at getting the word out to their citizens they serve. Whether it's debriefing a critical incident or educating the public about various aspects of law enforcement, it takes a special skill set that too many in law enforcement don't have. In this ever-changing world of social media, do you, your agency, and your community a favor and check out TOC Public Relations, a company ran by former law enforcement to help you get your message out in an appropriate and professional way. Check them out on social media as well as TOCPublicRelations.com. Let me tell you something you already know. Living a life in public service is a life of sacrifice. But you cannot serve the community or back your partner up if you're not physically able to do so. According to a report by the Wall Street Journal, more than 40% of law enforcement officers are obese. Other studies have found that police officers are 25% more likely to die from weight-related disorders like cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and even some cancers. Why continue to be a liability to your partners, your loved ones, your community, and yourself? Contact the folks at fit.responders and get your fight back. This episode is also brought to you by my new friends over at RTI Training, giving the type of training that incorporates humor and knowledge that cops respond to. Listen, we all know that you will never retain anything thanks to death by PowerPoint. So do yourself a favor and check out the new kids on the block when it comes to police training. They are revelationstraining.com. And guys, I also want to tell you about our sponsor, Jiu-Jitsu 5.0. They just came out with the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app. It is the ultimate training tool for all law enforcement. Members of the app get on-demand access to a huge library of techniques for the streets, grappling-based workouts, yoga, and a monthly nutrition plan. They also have 24-hour, 7-day-a-week access to Jason, the founder of Jiu-Jitsu 5.0, for personalized training assistance. So... Go to the app store of your choosing and download the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app today. It's available for Android as well as Apple, so get on it now. 
And last but not least, this episode is brought to you by Thin Vine Wines. Thin Vine Wines is a mission-driven wine company that proudly backs first responders and the military. With a background in law enforcement, their support for police, dispatch, fire, and the military is unwavering. Thin Vine Wines donates $2 from every bottle sold to law enforcement and military-driven nonprofits. Making awesome wine is the vehicle. Making wine with a purpose is the mission. Check out their social medias at Thin Vine Wines on Instagram and Facebook and order online at thinvine.wine using the code 10-8-T-E-N, the number 8, for $10 off two or more bottles of wine. As always, thank you to the sponsors and please everyone go show them some thanks by going and showing them some love, whether it be by buying their product or at least sharing their name, following them on social media. One of those things, it goes a long way. Support small businesses. But now back to today's show. The overarching theme for today's episode comes from the famous quote by the Greek philosopher Heraclitus. It says, No man steps in the same river twice, for it is not the same river, and he is not the same man. Our experiences change us, good or bad. You can learn from them and change your behavior, or you can repeat them and get the same results. Another quote by American inventor Henry Ford, If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. In law enforcement, we see this all the time. The abused partner bails their abuser out of jail and then wonders why they have to call the police the next night for the same incident. Or perhaps the heroin user gets Narcan, then gets out of the hospital later that night only to score another dime bag of fentanyl, only to be narcan again. This kind of repeated behavior is what we in law enforcement cynically call job security. But when we look at ourselves and our personal lives, how do we handle our own mistakes? I hate to refer to screw-ups as accidents. I mean, there are accidents. We do them all the time. Errors in judgment that result in less than desirable outcomes. But true mistakes, when you fuck up, you make a conscious effort to do something wrong. In previous episodes, like the episodes I've done with Dr. Delery or even a few of my other mental health episodes, we start to explain and understand why we seem to make these mistakes. But I'm more interested today in what we do after we are done with the pity party that makes us feel bad for ourselves. Do we learn from it or do we continue to act in error? My guest today has been to the depths of hell. Having never been in those shoes myself, I could only imagine how terrible it would truly be to be in prison for 19 years. And at such a young age, I mean, I could really see it crush your sense of self. And here's the thing. No one in this conversation is making excuses for the decisions that got him to that situation. And that's important because all too often when we fuck up, we start to play the blame game, right? We become the victims, whereas actually, no, it's all on us. True heroes take accountability for their actions and even bigger heroes like Jesse look back at what they did and find out that this, 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 and this led me down this terrible road. But the fact is he took all of this and saw the abyss that he was faced with and he decided not to be a statistic and not to be one of those societal lost causes. Once he was in, he took to learning and to growing as a human being. He was released on a pardon and since has developed into a TikTok star and more importantly, a true humanitarian to help raise awareness and affect change. I was absolutely honored to meet him and to have this conversation. I found him scrolling Facebook one night bored and I was hooked by his videos. Very interesting. And now it is my pleasure to share this conversation with you. So please everyone sit back, enjoy my conversation with the second chancer himself, Jesse Crossley. 
have seen him on tiktok facebook where's what i found him instagram jesse crossin how you doing sir doing well how about you oh not too bad how's the weather up in virginia uh we we've been having extreme heat followed by humidity followed by rainstorms and then humid heat so it's it's just a mix so it sounds like florida i i can relate to that i can relate to that so we're gonna jump right into the conversation um i feel like we've got a lot to talk about your story is definitely very interesting to me uh, like I said, I found you on Facebook Reels, and I just kind of saw more and more of you. So we'll start with that. Um, go ahead, introduce yourself, and then uh, we'll kind of dive in from there. Sure. So my name is Jesse Crossan, and the majority of my content online is about criminal justice reform and the fact that I spent 19 years in prison before receiving a conditional pardon from the governor. Okay. Okay, so what what happened? How'd you, how'd you wind up in prison for 19 years? So I was... You know, I was that kid who liked, uh, I, I didn't even start drinking or getting high until I was 16. So it wasn't like an early teenage thing, but it felt like a release and a chance to connect and a chance to like be one of the kids because I always had, you know, just huge like social anxiety and insecurity issues. And I found that and it wasn't going necessarily the best, but it wasn't going that badly. Um, and then I found cocaine and it was like a supercharger. And I went in a matter of three months from being a kid taking a year off before college to driving down the road and, and shooting two people after an uh, argument committing a robbery, trying to get more money for drugs, just essentially went from, you know, an average kid to a feral animal. How? How? What What caused you to go from there to there? Those are two, like, massive extremes. So the the first time I did cocaine, when, and let me, let me step back a second. My whole life I had always felt like there was kind of a singular answer for everything. Like, there was a white, right answer to a question, there was a right, right way to dress, there was a right way to whatever. And I was always looking for the right way to feel. And I, the first time I did cocaine, it was like a light switch. I was like, this is how I'm supposed to feel. This is how, like, like this is the best thing I've ever experienced. And so I just went chasing it. It wasn't like, oh, well, you know, I'll do this every now and then, or I'll just stop when it makes sense. It literally began to believe or feel like I needed this like I needed air, like I was underwater. And I was, like, I went from, through every legitimate means. Like, I, I worked jobs, I had money, and then I ended up selling drugs because I figured, okay, this is at least, like, you know, a way that I'm not taking from anybody. And I ended up getting to the point where I didn't care. I would have stolen from anybody to get more because it felt, again, like I was drowning. Now, so a year ago, I had I had a young lady on who uh, had the same issues with addiction. Um, I think her, her, her issues were with heroin and, and uh, meth. And um, she said throughout the time, as she went further and further down the hole, she wanted to get out, but she just couldn't. The way you're describing it sounds like, you know, it was it was actually truly a high, like you were feeling better. At any point through through that, did you feel that? Did you feel like you wanted to get out, or were you kind of... I mean, it didn't... The, the high of cocaine doesn't last but a minute. And after that, you're just chasing it for the rest of your life, or for the rest of that day, or the rest of that year. 
there was there was nothing pleasant about the second time you do cocaine, or at least for me. There was something amazing about the first time, and every time after that was chasing yeah, that I, first mm, feeling. Okay, so and it did. Oh, I, absolutely. I, I was trying to figure out... And I remember I had a, a friend go to rehab... And I remember in my mind thinking, like, what a silly idea. Like, of course you can't quit this. Like, you're going you're gonna to die from this. There's no... It felt inescapable. It's, it's mm-hmm. one of those things that felt bigger than life. Right, right. More than you can control. Yeah. So can you go ahead and give us the, the picture of how the incident happened that wound you up in a correctional facility? Sure. So there were two incidents. The first, I had a co-defendant who had worked for this uh, restaurant, and he said, oh, these are really terrible people, and they only hire illegal immigrants, and then they take all their money, and so they have a bunch of cash at home. They have, like, $50,000 or $30,000 in cash at home, and that allowed us to, like, have this delusion that, like, what we were doing was, like, Robin Hood. Like, we were stealing from bad people. We weren't stealing from good people. And this built up in our minds to the point where we could justify it because we didn't have any more money to get more cocaine. We didn't know what else to do. And so we went to this house to break in, um, and there ended up being somebody there. So we broke in, and my co-defendant stuck a gun in this maid's face and tied her up, and it went from being a break-in, which is bad enough in itself, violating somebody's like privacy in their space, to also just violating this, this person's kind of privacy and sanity in her, her. It was just horrible. Um, so we ransacked the house, and we didn't find this massive money. We didn't find a whole bunch of things. We just basically wreaked havoc on this woman in this household because of an idea that there might be money there, that things would work out. Um, that was the first incident. And then a few days later, these two guys had stolen a gun and sold it to a friend of mine who sold it to me, and then something happened where they said they wanted it back. So they started threatening him and, and calling him, and he basically said, yeah, whatever, like, I'm not worried about it. And then one night we were all sitting around because we had found somebody else to front us more cocaine, and we had managed to, like, you know, go back into our party lifestyle. And uh, his wife is calling up and saying, look, these guys are at the house, and they won't leave me alone, and honey, you know, I'm pregnant. Like, please do something. And me, you know, full of cocaine and, and brava, bravado, decided, like, I was going to save the day. So I got on the phone and said, look, y'all need to leave or else. Like, you know, what, what's wrong with you messing with a woman like that? We got into a shouting match. We ended up agreeing to go meet somewhere. So we met somewhere, and it was one of those few moments of clarity. Like, I actually had this before the robbery. I had this moment that, like, this is a terrible idea. Why am I doing this? But at that time, what I didn't realize was that cowardice was continuing to do what I was doing. In my mind, if I would have quit, if I would have stopped and left my friends to go do this alone, that would have been cowardice. I didn't understand what bravery was or what courage was. So it took me recognizing that in, in the kind of the second time of waking up in this moment. It's like I'm, I'm driving to this parking lot, like... This is a terrible idea. Like, somebody's going to get hurt. Like, they know I have a gun. Like, I know they have guns. Like, this... So I, I left. I, I drove right out of the parking lot, and they saw me, and they chased me. So we're driving down the road, and I remember being so angry and such, like, a little kid. Like, I, like I'm trying to leave. Just, like, leave me alone. Just leave <laughs> me alone. And they're in the left lane or the passing lane, like, swerving into me. And um, finally, the passenger reached around behind him like he was going to grab something, and I immediately just pulled out my gun and shot them. Um, I don't know what he was going for. I don't know... I have no way of knowing, but in that moment, I was convinced he was going for a gun, so I just unloaded. And if, you know, you have people in law enforcement, the whole idea of, like, John McClane, like, shouting some witty line after, like, I was screaming, I had tears, you know, streaming down my face, I was deaf because I basically had the gun right in my face as I fired it. There was nothing, like, romantic or it was horrible. It was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. And I hit both of them, they both lived, uh, but that was the, the second reason that I went to prison. Okay, so from those two incidents, um, were you contacted by law enforcement immediately, or was it there some time in between that? How What happened then? There had been a contact between the robbery and the shooting. They were a few days apart uh, where they had said, hey, you know, we got your name. Would you be willing to come down and get a statement? I said, yeah, sure, and just never showed up. Um, and then I was planning on leaving town. I just said, I'm going to get out of town. We'd actually, like, packed our stuff, 
And I went back to the house after the, the day after the shooting and it just had been up for three days, couldn't sleep, had basically run out of cocaine and just sat down for a second and didn't wake up for, I, I don't, I don't know the period of time between that and when we were arrested, but I know that I was completely knocked out unconscious. And I woke up to them screaming in Spanish that the police are outside. And we ran around, and I ran up the back steps trying to get out. It was a, like a duplex, a top-bottom duplex, thinking, like, well, maybe if I come out the top, they won't realize it's me. And I walked right into the barrel of a gun, and somebody's saying, I'll shoot you dead, boy. And not even being afraid, just almost being just resigned. Like, well, at least I won't have to, you know, deal with telling my parents. Sure, sure. How, how old were you when all this was going on? I had just turned 18. Okay, so you just turned 18, and you said you got into drugs and things like that when you were 16 so in two years you made this this much of a lifestyle change i guess you could say yeah what was what was lifestyle like before 16 i know you said you were kind of anxious and kind of the awkward kid but what was life like before that sure i mean i I was doing the best that i could i had been really smart i'd gotten you know amazing grades up to middle school when the switch flipped and i decided i want to fit in and try to be cool rather than get good grades I, you know, I played sports, I wrestled all through high school, I even wrestled after, you know, I started drinking and getting high, but my dedication definitely fell off. I just kind of, like, was trying to find my place, like, I was trying to find a community, and I was doing, even though there was the, that discomfort and the insecurity, I was doing a much better job of it then than I was with just basically hanging around with people that our only common interest was getting high. Sure, sure. I think, the reason I bring that up, I feel like a lot of people in law enforcement, we make these contacts with people who are on the street, stuck with drugs, and start making petty crimes, you know, breaking into cars, things like that. And for me, when I was working the street, my my reaction was, well, how did we get here? Why are we why are we here? Sure. Why are, you know? And so to hear, you know, a lot of people kind of have this preconceived notion like, oh, it sounds like their upbringing, but you know, it sounds like, you know, prior to you kind of getting in that party lifestyle, things seemed okay. You know, I'm sure, you know, everyone's life is not, you know, sunshine and rainbows, but it sounded like you had a pretty normal high school experience at the very least playing sports things like that so i just wanted to kind of highlight that that sure you know some people you know the whole inherently bad or you know inherently criminals or things like that not always the case you know sometimes one bad decision spirals into several more so as you went from uh getting contacted by police getting arrested then obviously mm. you, you spent your time in prison what ha- how did that all go about and what was your prison experience like? So I, you know, I was arrested. I got a lawyer. I pleaded guilty of the crimes that I committed. And, you know, I remember my lawyer saying, like, look, you're going to get 10 years and it's going to be really hard on you, but, like, you're going to make the best of it. And he actually was really encouraging. He gave me a couple books to read. And he basically was the one who told me, like, you can make a decision to make this time meaningful and you can do something with it or you can just be angry and get lost. And that was what kind of set me on that path. But then the day of sentencing, like you said, 10 years, because originally my sentencing guidelines were 8 to 13 years. And then that day they were switched to 10 to 16 years because one of the, the clauses. And then the judge sentenced me to 32 years. And that was like the shock. Like, wait a minute, I just got sentenced to twice the high point of the guidelines. Like, I'm never going home. And then the next several years were this battle of like moving forward and giving up and moving forward and giving up and, and walking into prison, which I was surprised by kind of how tame it was, at least in the beginning. You know, I walked in and I was expecting people to be like, you know, fighting and stabbing and insanity. And people were just sitting there on the phone or reading books or watching TV or having a conversation. But then it was like three or four days that I was in there, maybe five days. We would get up for breakfast. We're all sitting on the pod and one guy pulls out a giant knife and starts chasing the other one. He pulls out a, you know, a lock and a sock. And it's just like, okay, so this is real, but it's not like you see on TV. Like mm. there are these weird, odd pauses in between, which are almost more traumatic. I mean, I've talked to a couple of law enforcement who have said that the hardest part of their job isn't the shootout or isn't the other thing. It's 
you know, watching a child who got run over and then having to go help some woman who just locked her keys in her car and just the absolute disconnect and not knowing what's coming and not having any sense of like security in the day. And that's something I could really relate to because it was, yeah, I might be sitting there playing cards and then all of a sudden somebody's getting stabbed in the neck and it's like, you, you have no way to prepare for that. You don't get to gear up and go to battle. You just never know what's happening. Sure. Sure. It's literally moment after moment. You don't know what's going to be next. Now, what was the prison experience like? I know you said that it's kind of, you know, whatever, but how, based on what it was like, how did you find solace while you were there? So, I mean, there were a lot of years of searching. Like, there was, in the beginning, there was, well, what do I do? Do I need to fit in? Do I need to do this? Do I need to hustle? Do I need to get a job? And not really knowing. But it was a series of people that, that were essentially mentors. It significantly changed my life. And in the beginning, all I did was read. I read and studied, and my mom was able to pay for me to go to college, so I was always working on college work, and I was basically in the cell by myself or working out. I didn't interact with people, I didn't gamble, I didn't do anything. And this one guy pulled me aside and he said, look, I see what you're doing, and I think it's great. He said, but one day you're going to wake up and realize, like, life is about people. If you don't have any people in your life, you're going to be fucking lonely and miserable, and all this is going to be for nothing. And it, it shifted my perspective. I didn't, I didn't think about that. I had never thought about the fact that if I stayed in my little bubble, I was going to be isolated. Mm-hmm. So I did. I started talking to more people and building more relationships and getting to know more people. And part of that was making mistakes. Part of that was getting around the wrong people or getting to the wrong activities. But kind of balancing that and recognizing that I couldn't be the same isolated person I'd always been. Because that was one of the reasons I was so miserable. Like, I was insecure and miserable in school because I felt like I didn't have any friends. Well, I had friends. I just didn't call them. Or I didn't go do things with them because I stayed at home because I felt, you know, too much in my head. So it was that balance of going back and forth. And then the next mentor I had was even less expected. He was this formerly homeless kid who was, you know, a couple years younger than me, who was one of the most, like, interesting, brilliant, just weird people I've ever met. And was like, look, you know, I really like to introduce you to meditation. You know, I, I found that martial arts has really helped me feel a sense of, like, security and also, like, agency in my life. And just introduced me to that as well as all this different reading material and just fundamentally, like, change the direction of my life. So, I mean, you've really had a lot of influences throughout your time there that really kind of molded to who you were going to be on on, on the outside. Um, one thing I, I want to take a step back, when you said that your sentencing, obviously, it was supposed to be, you know, 10 years, 13 years, but it ended up being 32. How'd that happen? That's a massive leap. So that in, in the state of Virginia, sentencing guidelines are discretionary which basically means the judge has to sentence within the statutory limit, which at that point, robbery was five to life, uh, abduction was five to mm-hmm. life. Any of these things, basically, you could get a life sentence for. So statutorily, he could have given me two life sentences in 150 years. The sentencing guidelines are based upon the average for a crime. So the idea is they have a low point, a midpoint, and a high point to say that, like, look, if, if somebody is less culpable or is, like, really taking accountability or is really doing work, give them the low side. If somebody's denying responsibility or, like, just kind of like a bad apple, you would give them the high side. But there's no mechanism to appeal that. Like, I, I appealed the sentence and they basically said, look, the judge can do whatever he wants. Like, there's no way for us to, to you know, address that. And the other issue was the fact that the judge literally didn't know what the complete sentence was. Like, he read off that, you know, 10 years, five suspended, two years, you know. And at the end, my lawyer asked, well, what does that add up to? Like, what's the sentence? And the judge said, I don't know. And I just remember, like, at that time I was offended because I was like, aren't you supposed to know? But... I mean, I get it. The judge has this, like, performance, like, uh, what is it called? Uh, uh, the Like, at the Ford factory. that He has an assembly line job <laughs> yeah, where he has yeah. to see people over and over. He, he didn't see me for more than 15 minutes total. Like, he doesn't know anything about me. He has no way of judging one way or the other, and he's being asked to be a fortune teller. So in his mind, the combination of factors, he said, look, I think this guy's a bad apple. Like, we need to take him off the street. And he's in a position where he isn't given any more information than that. Like, he doesn't know. Sure. And it's interesting... 
So that judge was later taken up on, on essentially charges. So the Commonwealth's attorney and the public defender's office in unison basically brought charges with the uh, Judicial Review uh, Board against that judge saying, like, look, this is insane. He was he was literally just, like, refusing to hear witnesses, be like, I refuse, like, no, she can't speak. And they were both like, look, this is, like, relevant to the evidence. Like, what are you doing? So the Judicial Inquiry Review Board found him essentially guilty. He said, look, you violated the canon of ethics on these several issues. Uh, and they, he was going to have to step down. He appealed it to the Supreme Court of Virginia, which kind of said, uh, well, yeah, you did, but we can't really... It, it was kind of... It, it appeared, at least from the outside, to be one of those old boy networks where, like, mm-hmm. we're going to get you out from under this, but, like, you're going to retire. Or at least we know that he was found, all those charges were basically dropped, and then he immediately retired. But the problem is I live in a small area that doesn't have a huge legal community, so he was almost immediately back on the bench as a substitute judge. Now, the really interesting thing and the really relevant thing is both the Commonwealth's attorney who I have lunch with regularly and the public defender's office say that he's now the best judge in the area. That, like, he was acting really irrationally, he was called to task, and then he changed his behavior, which is the whole point of, like, rehabilitation or change. Like, we're supposed to say, hey, this isn't okay, like, we need to do something differently, and then people listen. And that's why, you know, people have asked me if, like, if I was angry because he sentenced me to all this time or doubled the high points. And my point is just, I want somebody who's going to be on the bench who has that perspective. Like, in a weird way, I feel like this gave him the perspective that makes him a better judge. I don't want him punished. I don't want to yell at him. I don't want to tell him he's a bad person. Like, I don't think that benefits anybody. So I, I just found that connection so interesting that we went through essentially the same experience and had the same result. Yeah, that's a, that's a really nice way to put it. Um, you know, when you, when you think about just life in general, you want someone who has been through some stuff, you know, you have some of that experience. If you have someone who's um, completely clean and flawless and everything like that, you know, you're going to get something very canned and just kind of, you know, whatever. But I feel like after you've kind of been through the mud a little bit and you get a little dirty and you come out that the weight of that experience, I think pays dividends for everything coming out on the other side. So I, I agree completely. And, and, you know, obviously what you're doing now and with that judge story, um, it all kind of, ties in together so while you're in there you get um you get exposed to meditation martial arts how did how'd they do martial arts in prison was that like allowed did you guys have okay i was gonna say did you guys have like rolling mats and well so when i when i first went in they still had boxing programs across the state and it used to be that one prison would box another and they like staff would bet on it it was just like hugely corrupt thing like you would see in the movies uh, and then they moved that to where you could no longer box from prison to prison. They no longer had traveling teams or traveling weightlifting teams, but they still had, you know, boxing programs. So when I first got to Nottaway, which was my first major prison, you had a smokers event, which I don't know why it was called a smokers, but a smokers boxing event every year or two times a year, depending on how much the rec guy wanted to put it on. You could sign up. You had to show that you knew a little bit. You couldn't just get in there like a wild person. And you could box. And it was a great thing. So every time we went over to the gym, we were able to hit the heavy bag and work. When I got to the new prison, they had the heavy bag and the speed bag and different sets of gloves. And it was great because they realized that it was kind of a, it was an outlet. Like the the idea that acute stress kind of rubs off chronic stress. So you've got a bunch of people walking around agitated and frustrated. You give them gloves and let them beat the bag or let them spar a couple rounds. Well, that agitation is eased. Like they're in a much better place and they're going to act much better. So that was really the way we started getting away with it. So I got into martial arts with Danny, which was doing stuff that we, we never did in the open. We always did it behind closed doors. We trained at night. Um, but then I started basically saying, look, I really like this. Like, I'm passionate about this. And as a kid, I'd loved karate. I'd loved wrestling. Like, I was, I was really passionate about it my whole life and just kind of lost it. So I started connecting with other people. And we started boxing in the yard because you still had that staff there. Even though they had taken away the official boxing program, they were like, yeah, of course you can do this. Like, we, we have boxing stuff in the gym. So then it was like, you know, I, I had a karate background. So I was like, well, let's see if we can throw in a couple kicks. And we did, and they didn't care. We're like, oh, cool. Like, we can, we can throw kicks, too. And you hit the pad with kicks. And so we just kind of continued to grow from there. 
And it was really the wrestling and the jujitsu that was hard to adapt because we found one guy had been, you know, doing jujitsu for five years. So we started teaching this and I'd been wrestling and, and it was like, as soon as we hit the ground, they'd, they'd be on the tower because we were doing this in the yard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they'd yell from the tower like, what? but it got to the point where there were a couple of things. Either the old school staff who had been there long enough to see the boxing program, they knew that this was a good thing. Like they knew this was to everybody's benefit and they were, they would tell their sergeants, they would tell their staff, like, look, just leave them alone. Like as long as they're not really fighting, as long as just like leave them alone. And then eventually we actually got the, the word of, I'm not supposed to talk about who it was, but like someone in the administration who called our old head, like the, the kind of leader of our group in there and said, look, I know you and I know this guy and this guy and, and our old head, he had had two stabbing charges. He'd gotten like 30 years on top of his original sentence for stabbing guys in prison. He was always in fights. Like some of the younger guys were gangbangers. And they said, look, you know, I see all y'all together and I would think this is the worst crowd, but like you haven't gotten into a fight and, you know, since you've been here, this guy dropped his flag. Like he's not representing anymore. Like what, whatever you're doing is working. So we can't say you can do this, but like, we're going to turn the other way. Just make sure everybody wears mouth guards, like make sure you're all safe and I'm going to make sure you're okay to do it. And that was that old school recognition. That wasn't that like by the book. It was like, hey, this is helping people. Like these guys who were in trouble, these guys who were gangbanging and have dropped what they're doing and are doing good things. Like, yeah, we want to support this. So that, that was what allowed us to like build it into a program that was like official. We had classes three times a week. We had events at the end of the year. And like, yeah, again, we weren't technically allowed to. And every now and then some would be in the tower and they'd yell at us or the truck would come around and stop us. But for the most part, we'd given we'd been given kind of the card to do it. Right, right. So, but so they, I mean, that's good though. Like you said, it's almost like, uh, the outlet for some kind of pent up, you know, aggression. I, I feel like that's a little too harsh of a word, but you got that. And then um, as you go on, obviously there's kind of a sense of community. Like this is our thing. We're going to do that. And, and this is the part that I really want to drive in is you kind of get that rehabilitation aspect of it as well, where it's like, Hey, this is a he- healthy way. Obviously you said that the gangbanger was no longer banging things like that. And isn't that what we're supposed to be promoting when, when you have someone in the prison system is so that way they don't reoffend when they get back into the population? Yeah, absolutely. And a couple of those guys I've been in contact with since they've gotten out and they're in gyms and they're training and they're, this has become a part of their life. Like I, I actually, I messed my knee up, but I go to jujitsu every Tuesday and Thursday at 6am and noon. Like I'm there four days a week when I was in town before I moved outside of town, I was in there Monday through Saturday every day. Like it became such a part of my life and my structure that yeah, it's not that I don't have tr- time to get into trouble, but it's a positive thing that I can kind of build my life around. Yeah, absolutely. Same thing with with working out, and um, you know, through watching some of your videos, I know that there's you know uh, work programs and things like that that really try to facilitate, or so it would seem, uh, positive activities. Because part of the thing that I've seen, or maybe I mean, please tell me when I'm wrong, but um, when it comes to people who feel who have been institutionalized, right? Like all they know is inside outs of the prison system is that, you know, they don't have those kind of healthy patterns or healthy outlets. And then they kind of go right back into it. How, what have you seen? Like, have you seen that people are more focused on bettering themselves when they get out? Or do they, do you actually feel like there are that set of people that are just waiting to the next time they get back in? So actually, I would say there's a difference between in and out. So the first thing I'll say is a difference in security levels. Like we have this idea that we can't let out those serious people. But when I was at a, a max or a medium, it was the guys with life sentences and the guys with longer sentences that were more consistently trying to better themselves, trying to educate themselves and doing something with their lives, whether it was in prison or planning for the future. And when they sent me to the, the minimum to the dormitory for the last 10 months of my sentence, that was the worst time I've ever done, partially because of COVID, partially because a dormitory is just an intensely like, you know, insane environment to live in. And partially because almost everybody there was just 
wasting time so that I could get out and do it again. Like, there was no mindset. There was no rehabilitation. There was no change in anything. It was just basically people in there getting high the same way they were on the street so they could go out and get high, do whatever they had to do, and come right back. And that's what broke my heart. Because in the, the higher levels, I saw people who... I mean, we had, we had a... Um, uh, what do you call it? The Men of Progress. We had essentially like a rotary club that did fundraisers every year for different charities. It like did things for children of incarcerated people who would come visit their parents. We had self-help groups. We, I mean, we had like, and these were all like prisoner run. These weren't like official groups. And what I saw was people who said, hey, you know, I, I got this long sentence. Like I got to do something with my life. They kind of like had to reckon with that. Whereas the guys who got six months or a year were never put in an environment that did anything but basically process them through. Like no attention was given to them. They didn't have the mentors around them. It just, it was such an unfortunate thing. And the biggest thing I've saw is that, excuse me, that I've seen is that people on the inside have a plan and you get out and that lack of structure is what makes it so hard. Mm-hmm. Like I, I had everything in place. I've got incredible support. I had a place to land. I was able to get a job. Like I was good and I have struggled. There were days that I'd be laying in bed just crying that I wasn't able to function in the ways that I thought. Like the stresses that I've experienced and I just had a recent kind of like recurrence uh, this past weekend are just totally unexpected. And I, I look at it and I'm like, I'm struggling and I have access to therapy and I have, you know, family and I was able to buy a house with my fiance. Like, I'm in a good position. How is this guy who's scrambling to get enough to eat because he's been kicked out of the shelter because they don't have enough beds? Like, how is that guy going to make it? And so what I what I really see is, like, in Virginia, there's no transitional housing. There are no state-run halfway houses. Like, there's some private halfway houses that DOC will contract with with certain people, but, like, you're not guaranteed. We had a guy who got out today and he had been looking for two months and they told him, hey, we don't have a halfway house bed till January. Like, good luck. Like, we'll see you. We'll put you up in a hotel for a week. So you got no money. You got no family. You got nowhere to go. And it's that lack of step down, which especially in Virginia frustrates me so much because it's like, so you're saying the day before I go home, I'm too dangerous to be at a level one facility or level, you know, work center and work outside the fence. But the next day you can release me with no supervision and no support. Like something about this doesn't make sense. And there's no reason that everybody who's getting out shouldn't work their way down from a medium to a minimum to a work center to a halfway house and slowly add more responsibility and experience to their lives. So they're actually prepared and it's not going from 23 and one lockdown to see you later. Right. Right. Especially for someone in your shoes who you were in for the better part of two decades to basically take that fish and pluck them right into the tank of water. I mean, that's talk about a shock. I mean, (laughs) the first day when I walked into Costco and had nothing but the clothes on my back and like started thinking about what I needed to have to have a life, like just the material things, like the, the basic things like, you know, deodorant and soap like okay I can think about that and then socks and boxers but like well what if I need tools like what if I get a job well I gotta eat like how am I gonna pay for f- like and I just spiraled out of control and I had a panic attack sure very easy to get overwhelmed I'm sure when when you got out obviously 20 years that's a long time to and a lot has changed in those 20 years what was probably the biggest surprise to you when you got out and and you know kind of wow this is different I mean, no flying cars, but... I mean, pretty close. You've seen those scooters you tap your credit card on and you go down the street at 20 <laughs> yeah, miles an hour? Yeah. Like, those trip me out. I, I'll tell you strangely, and this, this isn't the technology, the thing that surprised me the most was the people. Because what I saw in prison was I actually saw... I, I usually do, like, the 95 and 5 with staff. There were about 5% that really cared and really showed up and really did the best they can. About 90% that were just there for a paycheck and didn't really care one way or the other. They weren't, you know, they weren't jerks, but they weren't, you know, really out going out of their way. And you had 5% that really, like, shouldn't be working there. Like, they were there for the wrong reason. I saw a lot more kindness and compassion and camaraderie among the prisoners who would, you know, support each other and back each other up. I didn't see it in the staff, and that may be just part of the role, 
but I wasn't expecting a lot from the world. Like I wasn't expecting to be received. I was expecting to face like tremendous kind of prejudice. What I found is a lot of really kind, really decent people. Like I've been amazed at the generosity. Even like when I did donation drives, when I was doing it on social media, I was like, "Hey, we're trying to you know send a you know a couple hundred pairs of socks and these things to the homeless shelter to help people that are getting out of jail who don't have resources." And in one day, it was like thirteen hundred dollars worth of things were donated. And it's like these people don't even know me and don't know the people they're helping, but are just quick to say, "Hey, we want to help." I've just been blown away by the kindness and generosity that wasn't what I experienced in prison outside of the prisoners, and I kind of felt like I was always going to be in that outsized group. Like, that that kind of, you know, outcast group was going to have to stick together because people wouldn't accept us, and instead I've gotten an incredible welcome. And I know not everyone has that experience, so I don't want to generalize that, but yeah, that was the thing that surprised me the most. Yeah, that's actually really good. I, I wasn't expecting that answer to come from you either. Throughout your time, throughout your experience in and out of the judicial system, the law, the criminal justice system... What was your interaction with law enforcement? How was that good, bad, indifferent? I know you said about the, the correctional staff, you know, the 95 and 5, but as far as, like, law enforcement, the the actual cops that you interacted with, what was that like? So in the beginning, I mean, having somebody point a rifle in your face and tell you they're going to shoot you dead, boy, is not, like, the most encouraging thing. But at the same time, during the, the rest of the arrest, everything was, you know, was cordial. Was I mean, it wasn't obviously, like, happy or kind. They weren't, like, you know, shaking my hand and telling me I'm a great guy. But it was very professional, and I appreciated that. And then I didn't have any interaction with law enforcement while I was locked up because it just there was no reason to. Sure. But when I got out, that was what was interesting. So I started going to a jiu-jitsu gym that has a huge law enforcement presence. And so when I, when I went, I took my first class, and I pulled the teacher aside and said, hey, you know, I, I need to talk to you. Like, I'm really interested in this place, but I want to tell you my history. Like, this is, this is what I did. This is where I'm at. I know you have a lot of officers at work here. Like, is this going to be an issue? He said, no, like, you've, you've paid your dues. Like, it's, it's up to you. If you want to talk to people about it, cool. If you don't, that's on you. I'm not going to tell anybody. But, like, you know, you're going to be respected here. And if you have any problems, let me know. And then, like, the week later or two weeks later, the Seville, the local newspaper, did a story on me and, like, my getting out and the whole... St- and so it was, like, all of a sudden, all these people who just knew me as a random person suddenly knew me as, like, who I was. And the first person to shake my hand and give me a hug was an FBI agent. who was like, man, that's fucking awesome. Like, give me a hug. Like, I'm so happy for you. You're home for Christmas. Like, you know your mom's happy. And it was... That was the, the point at which that and just the classes and the interaction... Like, I already had in my mind that everyone is just a person. Like, regardless of what kind of uniform they wear or how they do. But it was that interaction that helped kind of reinforce that. To where mm-hmm. I didn't have, like, the prejudice to begin with that I think some people do. But it, it reminded me, like, no, we can be people. And, like, you can best me and I can best you. And, you know, we can we can try to murder each other on the mats and then go get coffee afterwards. Which is the weirdest sure. dynamic of jujitsu. Right, sure. Um, and it just, yeah, it, it kind of made me feel good about it. And I get that question a lot. Like, you know, what do you, how do you feel about officers? How do you feel whatever? And really I feel about the, the justice system as a whole, which includes, you know, the police departments or police officers, that they don't, we don't have the resources. We don't invest in the training. We don't invest in the support. Because I think about the person getting out of prison and the trauma that they've experienced while in prison and undoubtedly experienced before to end up in prison, the lack of treatment for that is a huge problem and leads to recidivism. When I look at police officers who have to respond to, you know, a two-year-old getting run over and then have to go help some lady, you know, get into her car because she locked her keys in her car, they're not getting the support that they need. So what we essentially have is two incredibly traumatized groups that are then stigmatized. And people are either all pro-police or all pro-reform, and it's like, no, like, bullshit. Like, neither of those things is true. Like, a police officer can be a wonderful person or a terrible person. A, A person in prison can be a wonderful person or a terrible person. Like... We need to look at people first, and we need to make sure that people have the tools they need to support themselves, to move forward, to be healthy, and to to model that to other people. And I I actually don't know the numbers on law enforcement. I'm sure you do. But 
the, the numbers on correctional officers are incredibly disturbing. They have a life expectancy of between 56 and 58, one of the highest rates of alcoholism, of suicide, of domestic abuse. Like, it's not a healthy environment. And a lot of people say, oh, well, that's because only bad people get into that job. And I'm like, no, that's because that job, like, breaks people. Breaks that job down, is not yeah. good for people. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's kind of why I do this show and, and why I kind of take my platform to what it is. Because, unfortunately, the, the mental health stats for law enforcement is not good um i think i'm pretty sure correctional and law enforcement they pretty much mirror each mirror each other as far as their numbers but right now or the last uh stat i looked at was one in four so an officer will kill himself four times as likely as a bad guy will kill a police officer or will get killed in a in a motor vehicle accident it's terrible and it sounds like obviously from the inmate population and then to the um re-entering society type thing you know with with all the things that you go through you're kind of faced with the exact same deck of cards now you've kind of taken this um not only like activism as far as like getting the word out there and explaining to people your experiences and everything but you've also taken a big leap forward like you were saying in reform for the criminal justice system and, and the prison system what exactly is that about what are you trying to accomplish with that so the the base is really what I talked about before with trauma. Like I see trauma and pain, if you if you want to use pain as a simplified term, is the root cause of addiction, of many issues of mental health, um, of criminality, of you know these issues that are facing you know uh, police officers and correctional officers. That pain is kind of transmitting itself. So like if I'm in pain and I hurt somebody else, or if I'm in pain and I don't think about anybody else and I take somebody and I hurt somebody by taking them, or if I'm in pain because I came home from a really shitty shift and I smacked my wife around, like this is the issue we need to address. Like how are we going to address this pain? So originally I came out and, and there are two, two modalities, like DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, and this kind of program around resiliency really affected me on the inside. And they were based in mindfulness and they helped me change my perspective on life, the, the tools that I had to deal with life. And so I said, okay, well, that's all I need to do. I can get out and I can teach that. And I started a nonprofit basically to do that. And then what I realized is that you can't walk into somebody who's dealing with homelessness or dealing with you know, food insecurity and say, hey, we're going to give you these tools that are going to deal with your emotions. They're like, dude, give me a sandwich. Right. And so I'm recognizing that we need this fundamental, like the base level of Maslow's you know, hierarchy of needs. Like we need safety and security and we need housing. Okay. And then we need employment and we need some basic access to services. So like originally I started out with that program and right now I hired a guy who was, uh, he, he likes to talk about him being in the jail and, and the warden saying, you were the worst inmate I ever had. You were the worst. Like we just knew you were going to come back. We just knew you were going to like do something crazy. And now he's teaching a reentry program. He's supposed to be going back into the jail. I hired him to teach in a local community. Because he's that reform story, and he's a person from that community. Like he's going to be teaching in the literal neighborhood where he grew up, and where he was a terror, and where people now look up to him because he's changed his life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important part. But I also really, I have this dream. I met with the housing authority yesterday. I met with a local nonprofit today. My dream is to set up a reentry center that is a real, comprehensive reentry center, where we give people a place to live. And we give them job training and a job on site because one of the big problems is, for example, I live in a city called Charlottesville that has huge housing uh, inaccessibility in or inequity, where essentially I, I think the median home in, in town is like 375000 and the average income is like, I don't know, like 40000 per person. Like it's just, it's untenable. So you have a lot of wealth and you have people that have to come in to provide all the services and work in all the restaurants and work at all the bars, but can't afford to live there. So we want to set up a house where we have either a vocational training program, but an actual on-site uh, 
essentially work program. And we've got an interesting guy who runs a, a dog training program for veterans with PTSD. He trains the actual service dogs. He wants to come in and volunteer his time to help these guys learn to train them and get the therapeutic experience of essentially training the dogs, as well as running a grooming operation, which is what he also has a, a number of businesses doing, which is in huge demand and has no background check and no licensing needs. So we're, we would put people directly into a job that would allow them to pay, would also allow for the operation of the house, but would also give them a platform getting out and we could help them relocate because local probation and parole is really happy to get rid of people. They're like, oh, you want to do state compact? Cool. We're at like 47% staffing. So here you go. Like, please get out of our air. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's the dream. Set that up. And then because people are safe and secure and have this foundation, we can actually start giving them the tools they need for, you know, the kind of emotional needs or the trauma informed needs. That's awesome. That's a, that's a, I mean, it's everything that you were just talking about, about the, the disconnect between getting out and, or your last day and then getting out. So that's great that you're actively moving towards that. I'm, I'm really excited for it. If you could, there's a couple different paths I want to go. We'll go with this one first. Um, when you were in, you were in prison, you said that you really took to reading a lot, read a lot of books. If you could name, let's say five books that really changed your perspective, what, what would you say those, those books were and why? Uh, Radical acceptance by Tara Brock, which is kind of a mindfulness or almost like a Buddhist based approach to, Accepting where we're at is a means to change it because we have this idea that like, you know, Buddhism is just like accepting things and, and passivity and, and the reality is like if we're in a shitty situation and we're thinking about why we shouldn't be in that shitty situation or why we should do things differently or whatever, we're not dealing with where we are. So the, the radical acceptance is stopping and seeing where we are right now and being grounded in the moment, which allows us to find a solution or a path forward, but also allows us to recognize what we're dealing with. Like that book just fundamentally changed my life. Uh, the book Anti-Fragile by Nicholas Taleb. Um, so it's a book about the fact that we don't have a word in our language for the fact that stress makes us stronger. That if we are never exposed to any challenges, the first time a challenge comes up, it knocks us on our ass. So that we need this kind of constant stress in our life, and there's too much and there's too little, and there's actually been a lot of research on this I've been exposed to. But we need to find that perfect level of stress, and we need to recognize that stress is an opportunity rather than a punishment. Like, hey, if I'm having a bad day, but it gives me the opportunity to cope and get stronger, it's just like lifting weights. Like... If I'm lifting more weights, it means I'm getting stronger. But if I stop and I'm like, oh, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to expose myself to something heavy. Well, then, like, you're not going to get any stronger. You're not going to grow. And, again, that just kind of fundamentally changed the way that I look at the world. Some of the other ones, um, there's a book by Pat Conroy, The Great Santini. So it, it's, it was one of the ways that I connected with my father. So my father had an incredibly abusive military father, had grown up in this home that was just was not safe and was not okay. And I never understood that because what my dad promised me was that he was going to give me a better life than he had. And so he never hit me and he never, he basically managed to like grow past where his father was. And reading that book connected me to him and it really inspired me because I had never, having never been there, I couldn't imagine where he came from. So I didn't fully appreciate the difference he had made in his life to make a difference in my life. And reading that book and being just streaming tears and just being like wrecked helped me understand where he had come from and it let me know that if I can have just the same level of commitment and do that much better for my kids or do that much better for the next generation that I come across, like that's going to require a huge shift. I can't just like live my life. Like, no, I have to work for this. I have to like engage every day to find a way to be better because if I don't, I'm not going to make the level of change he did. And like, come on, everything's about competing with dad. Like if dad, you know, did really good, you got to do just as good or better. Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think of ones that really kind of shape me. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, there, there's one, and this is new. I just got this. Um, Carrie, Carrie Blankinger, I actually have a copy of this. It's called Corrections in Ink. So Carrie Blankinger is, is a friend. I actually just spent the weekend with her. She was a competitive figure skater in, in middle school and high school. Just this incredible story and driven and, and powerful. 
and then got injured and was prescribed drugs. And, you know, that's what happens. And then immediately kind of went to heroin. And then within a couple of years is literally like walking down the street out of her mind with like six ounces of heroin because her boyfriend had the access and did... It was just this crazy situation. And she's now a reporter for the Marshall Project. She now does all this work outside of... Um, essentially highlighting what's really going on. And she's one of those people that I appreciate because she's no bullshit on any side. Like, I hate somebody who's like, again, all police or all pro-prisoner or all anything. She's like, no, this is an issue. Like, this is not okay. Or, hey, this policy that treats the guards this way, this is not okay. And she just highlights that. And she's dedicated her life to it. And there's so many people that I've seen that have gotten out of prison and just forgotten about it and put it behind them. And my problem is, like, I, I did see a lot of injustice while I was in prison. I did see a lot of mistreatment, on really on both sides. And if I just forget that and walk away from that, I'm not going to feel okay with myself. Right. I feel like right. I'm condoning it. Um, that's that's literally the, like, when people, you know, it was the battle cry, silence is violence. That's literally the case. Like, that's, that's the complacency. And I, I, I'm glad you touched on that because through watching your videos and reading the comments, I've noticed a lot of people are like, man, you just got to move on. You keep, you keep cycling back to prison and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, that's not what he's doing. It's not like you're living in prison. It's not like that's what your mind is. You're trying to first off, raise awareness to people like me who was completely ignorant to the fact that things that's going on there. And then furthermore, kind of, um, well, you're, you're obviously connecting to the people that have gotten out, which is great. And then, moving forward from all that as well i so you know when when you say you know people that want to leave it all behind them while i understand but if you've been there for so long you've seen so much that is not good um i definitely see what you are accomplishing and i I really appreciate that you're doing what you're doing if you could speak to a law enforcement officer or some my audience and if you could give them some words of wisdom from your experience things you know just something to kind of take away from your experience what would you say to them i said that people respond a lot more to people's actions and words um and i've seen that i've seen you know one of the videos that i did that i I was glad to be able to share was when i was in the jail there was a police officer who came in and basically did rounds he was a local officer and he would come in and he would go sell to sell and if he knew the person he'd say hey yeah you know i saw your car out i knew you got locked up so i called your brother because i didn't want him to tow it like look you know you got enough problems on your plate like you need to get out there and do the right thing and get back to your kid go to the next cell and you know whatever the situation was oh yeah you know look i told your mom like she said she's going to try to take care of it but you know i can't promise like good luck to you and he was connected to the community and it wasn't like i i don't know his name i don't think he ever won an award i don't think he ever got any credit for what he did but he was directly connected to that community in a meaningful way and the impact that he had on people's lives was profound because he didn't say okay i'm here to punish you or i'm here to whatever he said look i'm here to try to make things better so like if you're doing something wrong or if you're a danger like i I gotta take you here and i'm gonna wish that you could be a better like i'm gonna hope that you can find the ways to do it and i'm gonna pat you on the back when you get out i'm gonna come check on you not because i'm trying to bust you or catch you or punish you but because hey i want to know hey do you need anything like what do we need to do to get you in the right place and i just remember that attitude sticking with me and that was that was almost 20 years ago it stuck with me because I was like, that's what I want. Like, that's what I needed. Like, that's what I didn't have in that period. I didn't have anybody checking on me. I didn't have anybody who cared. I had people who tried. I mean, you know, my mother loved me to death, but her, her kind of path was hysterical. Like, when something would happen, she would get hysterical and get freaked out, and it just it didn't help. I didn't have anybody who could just calmly say, hey, like, you're really messing up, man. Like, you, you need to check this. Like, hey, let's, let's go grab a sandwich and let's talk about this. And I think that that ability to connect with people through your simple actions is probably the most profound ability anyone has. Yeah, absolutely. And and I feel like a lot of agencies and a lot of officers have kind of started to adopt that model. Like, you know, we're not robots. We're there to serve the community. Um, but I agree. And hopefully that's, you know, what you just said 
allows for people to realize like listen at the end of the day we're all people and like you said some have bad actions some have good actions but at the end of the day we are all people and we're really working for the same goal um so i do have a couple questions from the people that listen so i'm going to run them through you real quick uh first one and a couple of them we've already kind of touched on but do you think the criminal justice system was fair during your dealings um i i always have a difficult time with words like fair um as the system was designed, I got it. I would say, yeah, the same fair shake as, as theoretically anybody would get. But I mean, I guess my issue fundamentally is like, what is the goal? Essentially, the, the criminal justice system that I experienced, because during my sentencing hearing, uh, part of my plea was I said, one, like, I, I think that this is really fundamentally wrong. Like, I've been locked in a dark room with a bunch of guys for the last, you know, six months. And I have access to education. Like, I'm able to be taking college classes. These guys don't have anything. Like, there's something wrong here. And all I ask is that, like, I be able to serve my time and that hopefully, like, we all be able to serve our time somewhere where we can get access to resources or access to help or access to treatment. And the judge's response to that was to sentence me to 32 years in prison and then to mandate treatment after the completion of my sentence. So it's like, all right, we're going to put you away for 32 years and then we're going to give you the treatment you want. It was almost like a spiteful act. Mm -hmm. Um, So fair, yes, as far as, like, effective towards rehabilitating people or like kind of creating a positive or healthy environment, I, not so much. What can people do to be supportive of friends and family getting out of prison? The, that's a big one. I always tell people to start small and start slow because it's hard to describe. The, the, the closest similarity that I found is that people have come back from third world countries that we're working with like aid organizations or people who came back from combat zones. Coming back can be so overwhelming, and getting out of prison can be so overwhelming. Whether it's just the matter of choice, like walking into a grocery store and seeing 30 different types of deodorants, and just your brain shuts down. Like, I I remember when I did that, I went to go buy body wash at CVS, and I stood there for like five minutes, and just, my brain shut down. So things like that that seem really normal or really easy, that or big crowds or loud noises or, you know, kind of like challenging or complex situations... If you can help somebody, and this sounds really condescending, and I hope people understand this, I always say it's like it's like a child. Like you got to walk with your hand, like hand in hand, to start, and then you give them a little bit of distance, but you let them run back to you. Because if you can't provide that support, it can be such an overwhelming experience. And I've heard horror stories of people getting out and just being overwhelmed, just being like, "Yo, I'm going to go back. Like, I, what do I got to do to go back? I can't do this." Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, starting slow and starting small, and then you know, slowly encouraging people and helping them find that way, recognizing that it's going to take time. That's really good. Uh, this next one goes. What daily habits do you have to keep you from reoffending? Okay, I don't. I don't feel like reoffending is the threat. I think if 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 there was some chance of that happening, like that would be the symptom of the ill. Because illness to me is like a lack of connection. It's a lack of purpose. It's a lack of you know positive behavior. So it's I meditate. I have a gratitude list. I have good people in my life. I have an amazing fiance. I engage in work that's meaningful to me and that is designed around helping other people. So those are the things that kind of lead me, leave me in a fulfilled state. And I think in that fulfilled state, it is, I don't want to say impossible because I guess anything could happen, but that's not the person that, that goes out and offends. Mm-hmm. That's not the person that goes out and commit a crime. And I want to live a full life, not because it's going to keep me from committing a crime, but because it's the life that I've always wanted that I didn't know how to find. It's a life that I was substituting for drugs. Like I didn't know how to feel good. So I did drugs. I didn't know how to connect with people. So I like isolated and fucking, you know, put drugs on my nose and felt like, Oh, well, I'm okay. Like I'm better. I'm this. Uh, so yeah, I would say connection and daily habits. I think meditation and mindfulness is a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, engaging with the world around us. Right. And I, I really liked how you said that you really haven't cured the symptom. You cured the, the illness, so to speak. Yeah. Like you, you went for the bigger picture. Like you didn't just splint the arm. You went and got a whole new arm. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, 
last question we have for th- this section. Uh, what is one thing you can tell in an addict to try... I'm sorry, I think they type it here. What is one thing you can tell an addict to try and change their mind about their ways? That's a really uphill battle. Um, what I found is that for anybody to change, whether it's addiction or it's just traumatic, you know, kind of behavior that's led to really uh, traumatic experiences that led to really bad behavior, it takes something bigger than oneself. So for some people, they have a kid, and that's a light switch. Like they realize this is something bigger than me. Like I can't do this for myself anymore. For some people, it's a religious experience. They have that flash, and they say, "Hey, this is bigger than me. I can't do it." For some people, it's a community, but there has to be something bigger than a person. Um, and sometimes it's connecting somebody to a cause or to a, a movement or to a community. But I don't think there's anything you can say. I think that if you can help that person find a sense of connection that's bigger than them, that's really the light switch for people. I took a class a few weeks ago, and one of the things that they said to us was that if somebody doesn't want to change or they don't want the help, then you're kind of talking to the wall. You're not going to get through. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, in those situations, I look at it as planting a seed. Like, if I, I worked as a, um, a mentor in a mental health program, and there were guys that just, they didn't want to change. And what I would do is I would go and I would give them my pitch. And I wouldn't say, you should do this. I would say, hey, this is what worked for me. This is my experience. This is what I really enjoyed. This is what I didn't enjoy. If you're ever interested, you know, come talk to me. And, you know, probably nine out of ten of them never did. But there was always that one who a week later or six months later or a year later was like, hey, what was that? What were you talking about with that, like, whole, like, getting clean and not wanting to kill yourself anymore thing? Like, can, can you talk to me about that? And it's, it's about planting seeds because I really and, – and this is kind of the ugly side of prison. I look at it as the, the triage thing. Like there are a third of a people that they're ready. Like they're ready to go home right now. Like they're never going to commit another crime in their lives. They're in a steady place. They're about a third of the people that you know are kind of like on the fence. Like they, they you know have these really strong habits. They have these really strong desire to change. They don't necessarily have the tools to do so. And I feel like they're the group that needs the majority of the attention. And then you have this last third that's, you know, they don't want to change. They don't want to hear anything you have to say. They don't want to do anything. And again, that third, like I said, I'm going to go off and I'm going to drop all the seeds that I can. And I know that's not going to sink in most of them. But if I can get one of those people, if I can change one life, if I can prevent them committing one more crime from hurting themselves one more time, like, you know, I, I'm not going to spend all my time on that what feels like a Sisyphusian task. But I'm going to drop those seeds because, you know, if any of them pay off, I know I've done something. Yeah, that's really good. And I agree. And I feel like that's a great mindset for law enforcement. I feel like... You know, we it's very easy to get burnt out when you kind of deal with the same individual again and again and again. And you're trying to, like, be like, come on, man, be clean. You know, we, we're – but, again, you kind of got to hope that one of those seeds takes root. All right, Jesse, the last thing I got for you today is called the mental minute. I'm going to hit you with a couple questions. Don't think about them too heavy and just kind of give me what you got. All right, here we go. What's the best book you've read recently? Uh, corrections and ink. Uh, what is something you do to ground yourself? Uh, meditate or just feel whatever I'm contacting the floor or the seat or wherever I'm sitting or standing. What do you do for self-care? <laughs> uh, get a massage as often as I can. Would you open up an envelope with your death date written inside of it? Oh, God. Probably not. Would you be friends with yourself? I would now. What do you want from other people? Their best. What sort of impact are you looking to make and how will you make it? If I can make the world a little bit kinder or a little bit more open to seeing another person's pain rather than seeing that person's actions. My hope is that I can reach someone or reach, you know, any group of people that don't make the same mistakes that I did or the same choices that I did, that don't make the same kind of mistakes that so many of the people around me did. And the way is by hopefully helping a small group and telling a story about myself or about them or about the people that 
uh, have gone through something difficult and are lost and are looking for a place to, to land or looking for a way to change. And that hopefully there will be this understanding that, like you said, we're all people and that you and I can have this conversation or me and somebody who didn't get along can have a conversation. And we can move towards just supporting one another and trying to help each other kind of reduce that pain or reduce that distress so that we can be together because there's no point in everybody being apart. I agree completely. Uh, it kind of brings up the whole, you know, basket weave, the whole fabric of society is us all being yeah. together. What do you think is the meaning of life? Uh, to engage as fully as possible in each moment and to live from a place of kindness and love. How do you define the word friendship? Hmm. I want someone who will... God, actually, this is a Nietzsche quote. A friend is like a hard seat. Like, they'll give you a place to sit down, but they won't let you get too comfortable. They're going to keep you moving. They're going to hold you accountable. They're going to demand the best of you. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when you're just completely broken and you need a place to lay, they'll be there. And they'll let you be there until it's uncomfortable enough that you're going to keep moving because they don't want you to be stagnant. They want you to keep growing. I like that. How do you define the word happy and what makes you happy? I think happy is transitory. The word I look for is contentment, which is being able to be with the flow of what comes, recognizing that I'm not always going to be happy and I'm not always going to be sad, that this too shall pass, and then not fighting that. Recognizing that, you know, I'm really happy when I get out with my friends or on my motorcycle or I, I do a good jujitsu class, but that just as often I'm going to have something that's going to be disappointing or frustrating, but that by not fighting that, I'm able to keep moving and I'm able to keep engaging and not being stuck trying to be happy, but instead experiencing a peace with that contentment. Very good. Jesse, that's all I got for you today. Thank you so much for your time, your words, your wisdom, and thank you for doing what you're doing. If people want to find you on social media that haven't already, where do they find you? And So I'm on TikTok or Facebook or Instagram or YouTube. All is Second Chancer, S-E-C-O-N-D, then C-H-A-N-C-E-R. Uh, look me up or, you know, the nonprofit secondchancer.org. Uh, just check it out. You know, hopefully we can find a way to, you know, put these things into action. Very good, very good. Jesse, thank you so much for your time. Uh, best of luck to everything you're doing, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, sir. Everyone listening, stay tuned. We'll be right back. I think I need help. I'm drowning in Listen, I don't care what your major screw-up is, was, because we can't go back. We can't change what you did. The important thing is to learn from your true mess-ups, your true mistakes, because every time you fall down, you have to get back up. Now, there are some things that truly can fuck up your life. You know, if you cheat on your spouse and she moves out, and now you have to spend splitting weekends with the kids. Or if you decide to drive drunk and you lose your job because you get arrested. Or you make a bad judgment call at work 
and you get into an IA, you get fired, you get put on administrative leave, you lose a promotion, whatever it might be. Those things can truly mess up your life. And, you know, Jesse would definitely say spending 19 years in prison will definitely fuck up your life. But sometimes we can take those situations and turn them into a rebirth. To me, the Phoenix has always been an important figure in my life. The rebirth from the ashes. Because I can guarantee you, 19-year-old Jesse or 18-year-old Jesse and the Jesse that is here today, no, those are two completely different paths. 18-year-old Jesse would not be where Jesse is today. Just wouldn't. You know, and Jesse has realized that Jesse talks about that. Jesse has definitely grown from that. And those other possibilities that I just talked about, the real major fuck ups, you know, they're bad. And I'm not here to downplay or make light or condone any of those behaviors. They're all bad. The pro- the thing is, you can recuperate from that. You, It's up to you, though. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be someone like Jesse. It's not going to be any kind of motivational speaker that's going to make you want to do that. You have to decide to change your life. Now, those are extreme cases, and I hope if you're listening, you never experience those extreme cases, especially if you're you know new on the job and you know you, you got your wife, you got your kid, you got you know things are hunky dory. Guess what? Things happen. Opportunities come up. Bad opportunities. And it's up to you to make that decision. Law enforcement should have the strong moral fiber to not make the bad decisions. But unfortunately, we are human and we fuck up. Now, like I said, those are extreme advanced situations. And we may not ever face those. But there are other ones that happen. And you can still screw up. My point is, nothing is final. The only thing that's final is the final. So, going to circle this around to be a mental health conversation real quick. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever issue that you may be focused on or, you know, you may be troubled with, it is never the end. The only thing that is the end is the end. There are people that have fucked up majorly and have come back from it. So I'm speaking to anybody, if you are going through a hard time, if you think that the end of the world is upon you because you fucked up royally, whatever it may be, you are not at the end. You can always recuperate, and I believe that, you know, there is some kind of atonement for your sins. I'm not a religious guy, I think I said that in this conversation, I've said it in the past, but for your wrongdoings, you can come back, and I, I truly believe that. And I just want to put in a quick disclaimer that there are a select few individuals that um, are unsavable. But you know what? If you're listening to this, you're probably not in that group. So um, that being said, you know, I hope you hear these words. I hope you hear this story and go, you know what? I got this. And Jesse is absolutely an inspiration for obviously the, the community that, you know, Just the community at large. I think you're going to hear in the next couple episodes as we go through the month of November into December, you're going to hear a lot of stories and a lot of conversations where we're talking about a small section of people, but really it can umbrella to talk about all people. And I'm really excited to share that. As a matter of fact, next week 
we have the much-awaited, highly anticipated Female Cops episode, affectionately titled The Clam Slam. And we are going to talk about the plight, uh, if you want to call it that, of the female police officer. And honestly, the conversation that unfolded, it, you know, my I try to keep these conversations about an hour. This one just blossomed into two hours, and it could have gone two more six more it could have just kept going uh but it was late and i had work in the morning so i had to cut it but honestly you're going to hear these conversations coming up over the next uh few weeks like i said and be blown away by it so definitely looking forward to sharing that with you we've got a bunch if you're still listening and you came from tiktok if you were following second chancer and he uh he talked about this and you're here checking it out thank you so much for kind of still sticking with me i really appreciate it uh hopefully if you're you know if you're following jesse you're probably uh i mean you may be pro law enforcement but you know you may not be um we're we're very we're a tight niche here you know it takes a very select individuals to really want to seek out this kind of content that being said though if you've never really listened to cops talk about cop stuff and you have some kind of interest go ahead and listen to previous episodes i've got a whole bunch of them two full seasons and then this season talking about a bunch of different myriad of uh, interesting topics some may interest you some may not but please go check it out if you're new to this show in general do that and if you've been here for a while go back and re-listen to them they haven't aged terribly at all i also have a merch store that's 10 t-e-n dash eight e-i-g-h-t dash memes m-e-m-e-s dot e-c-w-i-d dot com it's a long name amazing results I don't know if you guys know that commercial. That's from a long, long time ago. But anyway, long name, amazing results. Go check it out. I've got a whole bunch of merch there from t-shirts to koozies to glasses. Stickers are always coming in. I got a new patch that should be here hopefully by the time this airs, but probably not. But I've got a lot coming, and hopefully we can get a lot more going as well. Let's see what else we've got. 10, 8, underscore, memes. All spelt out. That is the Instagram. That's the hub. But we are also on Facebook, Twitter, Truth Social. We've got a little small presence on YouTube. Trying to expand my horizons. And I'm kind of a little bit flirting with the idea of checking out TikTok in a different way. Um, No memes. Nothing like that. No overtly police content. It's just going to be food reviews if I do it at all. So check that out. Next week, I already told you about the Clam Slam on Thursday. On Monday, we have Punk Rock Cops number three. And they're going to talk all about straight edge, hardcore punk music. So check that out as well. And uh, the following week is going to be Jersey Boys. And then we're just going to keep on rolling. And you don't stop. Once again, guys, thank you so much for joining us this week, and we will see you next week for a bunch of other stuff. Check out the merch store. Check out my Instagram. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining in. Until next time, take care of each other and stay safe. 10-8, out. to test.